Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you so much for listening. So um, we're just going to jump right into it. This is probably going to be a, a shorter episode. So <clears throat> the Academy Award nominations were announced, and when they were, imagine everybody's uh, shock when the the film that got the highest number of nominations was not The Irishman, it was not 1917, but it was in fact Joker, directed by Todd Phillips. Um, for the last couple of weeks, uh, I've found myself when talking with friends, I find myself just repeating like both sound awards, literally, both of them, along with costuming and writing and all of that. Uh, it really has been crazy to think about. And, you know, at the same time, good for them. Uh, I'm not going to say that the Oscars always uh, single out the, the most qualitative uh, films. But uh, when you have these different, uh, when you have it break down like this so that uh, it gets nominated for costuming and sound and these, these technical awards, well, the people voting for those are people who do know what they are doing. And so uh, clearly people within the industry see that Joker is something uh, of value. And, and so I, I, I don't want to diminish the film very much, uh, but I myself am not a huge fan of it. There are a lot of things that I do like about it. Um, you know, a lot of people are a lot of people that I know uh, would put Joker on like their list of the of the worst movies of the year. I don't think I would do that um, because there's a lot of good in it. Uh, but at the same time, there are other people that say it's it's an amazing film and it brought in a ton of money. And I just, uh, and the, the Academy says it's one of the nine best movies of the year from any country. Uh, and that Todd Phillips directing is, uh, is one of the five best directorial, uh, efforts of the year. And I just can't imagine that being true. Uh, I certainly don't think it's true for me. What I will say and what everybody has said, this is not, uh, unique to me is that Joaquin Phoenix, who plays the character of Arthur Fleck, who eventually goes on to become known as Joker, uh, <clears throat> he is wonderful in the film. Uh, as I was watching it, uh, or after I was watching it, as I was walking home and, uh, well, walking to my car and driving home, uh, I said out loud, I said, thank God for Joaquin Phoenix. And what I meant by that was there are, there aren't a lot of actors or directors or writers who surprise us anymore. We kind of know, unless they're unknown, um, in which case anything they do would surprise us because we don't know who they are. But as far as known quantities, we know that, that we can rely on um, uh, Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino. Um, we know the, the directors and know that they can consistently put out really great products. Um, and same with, uh, same with actors, but every once in a while, there's an actor who, even when you feel like you kind of know what it is they do, they commit to a character that is unique and they find everything that that character has to offer. 
to such an extent that it feels fresh and scary and disturbing and dramatic and all of these things that we're supposed to feel uh, when we watch a movie. And Joaquin Phoenix is one of them. He's just, he's a completely unselfconscious uh, actor. He's going to do what is right for the character. And I think he'll actually go beyond that. And this might be this might come down to me not having a very high opinion of Todd Phillips as a director. Um, the script for Joker, I think, is pretty obvious. It's co-written by Todd Phillips. Um, I think it's it's written pretty obviously, and I think it's directed pretty obviously. But I think Joaquin Phoenix is able to elevate the writing um, to the point where it feels like uh, there's more going on in that script than, frankly, I think there actually is. Um Joaquin Phoenix, just through the way he carries himself, um, the way he glances at people, the way he obviously says lines, but also there's stuff like uh, there are moments where the character has to laugh uncontrollably and Joaquin Phoenix making that a painful thing um, is something that uh, I think elevates the the again, I think pretty basic and obvious script. And, uh, and that's, that's what an actor can do. Um, I do feel like in, in certain film critic communities, we tend not to, I mean, we value acting, but we don't talk much about it. We talk about what the director is doing and rightfully so a film is a, you know, film is a director's medium, but, um, but as a result, we, we see all of the stuff that a director is able to wield, whether it be the music or the art direction or the cinematography, the editing, whereas acting seems to be sort of outside of that, the actor, as though the actor is doing his or her own thing. Uh, but of course, uh, an actor and a performance is something that a director can use as well. And, you know, I will say uh, hats off to Todd Phillips for casting Joaquin Phoenix. It's a brilliant bit of casting. And uh, and probably working with him to find all of these different uh, elements. But when I look at something like that and I look at the history of Joaquin Phoenix and the history of Todd Phillips, I get the impression that uh, whatever is really, truly astounding about that performance probably originated more with Phoenix than with Todd Phillips. Um of course, any filmmaker, regardless of what their history is, any filmmaker is, is capable of surprising you sometimes. Um, but that's the thing is Joaquin Phoenix is such a reliable actor, uh, reliable in his unpredictability um, that, you know, when you watch a movie like The Master, you absolutely can can see uh, the potential for, for Joaquin Phoenix to play a character like the Joker. And so... Uh, so and you've probably gathered at this point that the movie Joker for me boils down to a really great performance and very little else. And, uh, you'd be correct. That is, that tends to be how I think of it. Um, that it's that character, uh, as played by Joaquin Phoenix is very memorable, uh, very tragic, often funny as he should be given that he's uh, the Joker, but, uh, the film around him, I think is, is directed with such 
this is a very film critic word. I'm sorry. With such portent, um, the I or portent, I don't know exactly how you say it. So I guess I'm not that good of a film critic, but, um, it's Todd Phillips has always made movies that have a visual ugliness to them. I think a purposeful visual ugliness. I don't think, uh, it's just, he, he thinks his movies look beautiful when in fact they're quite grotesque. Uh, if you watch something like the hangover, you'll see that like, that is the way Vegas looks. And in fact, um, whether it be at night or more specifically in the very harsh light of day, everything looks pretty, uh, pretty gross. And so I do think that that he has uh, a very specific vision for movies like uh, The Hangover and Joker, but <clears throat> but I feel like the, the fact that he's done just pure comedy up to this point, and now he's making this film, it it the film plays whether it be the use of music or the cinematography. I think it's actually a pretty well shot film for the most part from a framing standpoint, but. Uh, it just feels like somebody trying desperately to prove to us that he belongs at the grown-ups table. Um, everything is just so serious and it, but it's serious in a very immature way. Um, I, as, as I'm sure is the case with many of you, if you're invested, if you're interested in film, there probably was a time when you would write films or screenplays or, or stage plays or whatever it is, uh, especially in, in high school when we're trying to figure out what our relationship to, to art is and, and to film. Um, and so, you know, I wrote plays, uh, I wrote, I wrote a, uh, gosh, now I, so I wrote one called The Model Citizen, which is about political corruption. I wrote this when I was like 17. And obviously, who doesn't know everything there is to know about political corruption when they're 17? Um, I'm pretty sure it was a screenplay now that I think about it. like the reason that I'm getting confused. I haven't looked at it in 20 plus years, uh, but also it, it was just so inherently stagey um, that uh, that I'm having a hard time remembering in immediately if it's a, if it was a stage play or a screenplay, not that it matters, it was very bad. Um, and, but I, and then I, I wrote a, a one act play that I was proud of at the time. If I were to look back now, I'm sure I'd think it was pretty cringy. Uh, and it was all about, uh, it was all about alcoholism. And of course, having never been drunk to this day, certainly 17 or 18 year old me knows a lot of about alcoholism. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, it was just basically, I, I saw the last weekend, Billy Wilder's the last weekend and, uh, uh, felt inspired by that. So anyway, uh, that is, that's the vibe that I get from the, the screenplay and the directorial style of Joker. It just feels like an immature work, uh, by somebody who's, who feels like, no, I, I really, I've got something to say. And I'll be honest, I don't know what Todd Phillips is trying to say with Joker. I've got some ideas, um, but but that's the problem is every idea I have of what he might be trying to say, I think is completely undercut by the, cho- the artistic choices he's making, which suggests that either I'm incorrect, uh, which is possible, or more likely he tried to do everything and in doing so, he wound up doing nothing. 
but it, it certainly looked like he was doing everything. He was, he was really busy, uh, making this movie. Um, but I think he, he tried to go in too many different directions and as a result, uh, wound up going nowhere. So, so I'll get to what I think he was trying to do in a moment. But what I, what I will say is, um, I want to talk about the obvious first, um, which is anybody that has seen the films of Martin Scorsese, more specifically what I refer to as his loner movies. Uh, Scorsese is known probably more uh, for his mob films like Mean Streets and Goodfellas and Casino and The Departed and now The Irishman. Uh, they're all very good. I really, really like The Irishman. Um, I think that's what the next episode is going to be about, actually. Um, but uh, Scorsese also made a lot of movies about just uh, loners, just usually men who are trying to figure out where they fit in society. And as they try to figure it out, they often do so violently. Um, so you get a movie like Taxi Driver or The King of Comedy, even something like Last Temptation of Christ, which admittedly the loner here is uh, Jesus Christ, played by Willem Dafoe. Um, but you get stuff like Bringing Out the Dead, um, even something like The Aviator, Wolf of Wall Street, kind of has that that quality to it. So um, those tended to be the movies that I like more. Um, mob movies I have a hard time watching. I mean, I, I like The Godfather, but that's because... Um, even Coppola himself says that he didn't want to make a mobster movie. He wanted to make a family movie. Um, and I think that actually, uh, contributes to why I like, uh, why I like it. It's, it feels like a domestic drama. Um, people are over the moon about Goodfellas and understandably so it is a very well-made film, but I have a very hard time. Sp I don't like spending time with those characters. However, uh, not to suggest that I really enjoy spending time with, uh, you know, Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull. Um, but I think I, I, I react more to just the, the internal life um, as opposed to stuff like Goodfellas where everything is, is externalized. Um, that's obviously I'm, I'm, I'm reducing everything when I say that. But uh, anyway, the reason that I'm talking about that is because when you watch Joker, if you've seen Taxi Driver, I mean, the, the comparisons about, you know, a, a young mentally disturbed young man, uh, in the middle of a pretty cruel and ugly city and the way that it transforms him into, into a person of, of violence, uh, that's, that's right out of taxi driver. Uh, but then I would also say that the film, the King of comedy also, uh, contributed greatly to Joker. And in both of those films, uh, Robert De Niro plays the lead. And so here there's a, a character named Murray Franklin, who is a talk show host. And when uh, Arthur Fleck, uh, at this point known as Joker, when he goes on Murray's show, this acts as the climax. Um, Whereas in The King of Comedy, when this would-be comedian kidnaps a big TV personality played by Jerry Lewis, uh, that is essentially the entire film. Whereas here it just acts as like, we've been building to this, and then here we are. Um, <clears throat> I certainly don't begrudge anybody uh, a the desire to 
pay homage to previous filmmakers, previous genres. Uh, some of the best filmmakers out there are clearly trying to not mimic or even ape. Uh, I will, I will, I'll go back to that term. I think they're paying loving homage to the masters. So you get something like you watch what lies beneath and you see, okay, there's a lot of Hitchcock in here. In fact, a lot of Brian De Palma's career is very overtly trying to capture, uh, the Hitchcockian quality. You look at JJ Abrams and he's clearly, uh, paying homage to, uh, Steven Spielberg. And then you get uh, filmmakers like the Coen brothers who, actively pay homage to, to different film genres. And yeah, I, it doesn't bother me whenever a director does that. A lot of people have actually looked at the, the, the parallels between taxi driver and the King of comedy and Joker. And they have viewed that as a, as a negative thing. They've said, Oh, well, this guy's just ripping this off or ripping that off. I, it, film is constantly ripping itself off. So that doesn't inherently bother me. What does bother me is that he was so eager to pay homage to those films that he cast Robert De Niro as Murray Franklin. And of course, De Niro was a big Scorsese guy. Uh, and then after several, uh, years finally comes back for, uh, the Irishman and, Robert De Niro is, a, is an actor that I haven't, that, that I, I appreciate. And then in the right role, I really, really appreciate, but, uh, I've never responded to him the way some people have. But when you watch something like taxi driver or King of comedy or mean streets, he is a, a very electrifying actor. And recently in the Irishman, he, I think he's doing really good work there as well. Um, but one part that he absolutely cannot and thus should not have played is Murray Franklin. Uh, there's a reason that in King, in the King of comedy to play the talk show host, to play the, the famous comedian, uh, Martin Scorsese actually reached out to a famous comedian, which was Jerry Lewis, a legendary comedian, uh, which is Jerry Lewis. And so here, um, you know, anytime I see, a, a, an actor try to play a stand-up comedian or something like that, unless they have some some history of comedy in their background, specifically stand-up comedy, it just falls so flat. There was a movie on Netflix uh, this last year called uh, The Last Laugh, in which uh, Richard Dreyfus plays an aging uh, stand-up comedian. And he gets back on stage, and Richard Dreyfus is a very uh, watchable actor. He has a really strong comedic sensibility, but being a comedic actor is very different than being a comedian. And it's just a different vibe. And when I watch uh, De Niro in Joker try to be this this host, it just falls so flat. I don't believe that this guy would be a would. Not only do I not believe he would be uh, a talk show host, I certainly don't believe he would be a legendary talk show host who's been doing it for decades and decades. He certainly doesn't seem like it. Uh, and so when I and he's just not very likable, uh, which will get us into some some other problems that I have with with the film as far as its execution. But um, I think it actually would have been riskier. And I do think that Todd Phillips is trying to take risks. I think it would have been riskier to cast Murray um, with an actor who we all like inherently, um, somebody like and maybe, and maybe he tried, but somehow I get the impression he probably didn't because he was trying to make that Scorsese connection. But somebody like a Tom Hanks or maybe somebody like 
uh, Ray Romano, who actually was a stand-up, and Tom Hanks did some stand-up early in his career as well. Um, or maybe if they want to go someone, you know, I'd say notably older, uh, maybe like a Michael Keaton. Um, he did stand-up in his in his early career, and has a, a certain sensibility and just, and he's just a very likable person. We enjoy watching him. So, uh, and that's, and we'll get into the spoiler portion now so that when Murray is eventually shot in the head, uh, by Joker on air, uh, it, it should be something that is shocking because we're not used to seeing actors that we like get shot. And while we're not often used to seeing Rob De Niro get shot in the head, uh, just he's just so there's an intensity to his performance that just doesn't fit the lightness of a talk show host. And so it everything just seems there's an inevitability to it as opposed to a shock. Um, whereas if you have somebody who's just upbeat and light and constantly smiling and making us laugh, um, and then they get shot, that is a very jarring image. And so, uh, so that's the thing is I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge Todd Phillips for, um, for paying homage to these movies that he loves. But the problem is that I think he let that influence him in a bad way. Um, when you look at the films of the Coen brothers and when they delve into film noir or Western, they put their unique stamp on it. And yeah, they'll pay homage through, uh, specific lines or specific shots, but they make it theirs and they do, they will cast, uh, based on what is right for their film, not as a little tip of the hat to, uh, to their influences. Um, and that's the thing is if he wanted to have Robert De Niro in there, I think maybe he could have played like Thomas Wayne or something like that. He's probably a little bit too old for that. Um, that went to Brent Cullen, but, um, he, I think he could have found a spot for him. I just don't think it w- it should have been that part. That part is just, it's a crucial role, Murray Franklin. And it's just something that De Niro is not up to um, because of his specific skill set and then a completely separate skill set for, um, for the character of Murray. And it's just not one that he has. And so um, so even even when I'm, I'm trying to cut Todd Phillips slack, he still finds a way to do it wrong. He did homage wrong. The way he did it made his film worse. Um, and so that's a casting choice. Um, but to get into the, the choices that he makes from a writing standpoint and then from a directing standpoint, like I said, I just don't, I can't quite figure out what he's trying to do. And I think it's because he's trying to do as much as he can. Uh, The film would seem to be uh, an exploration of mental illness and the way that the, that the world um, deals with it, or maybe more specifically doesn't deal with it uh, the way that it stigmatizes it. So, okay. All right. That's not bad. That's a, that's, that, in fact, that is a goal that I'm very much on board with uh, thematically. Uh, I myself, not just because of the world, but also certainly in the Christian community, it bothers me tremendously the way people talk about uh, mental illness. Because if it's not a thing they can see, they only see it uh, as a function of somebody's personality, the way it comes out in the, the a person's uh, 
speech or actions um, as opposed to a broken leg or cancer or something like that. Uh, and as such, it, it it often feels like something that um, can be a little bit more easily conquered. It could be like, oh, well, maybe you should just try exercising or getting more sleep or eating better. Or, of course, in the Christian community, it's maybe you should just try prayer. And while prayer is never a bad idea for anything, uh, no one would ever say that to somebody who's broken their leg. They would say, by all means, pray for a, a speedy recovery while we actually treat it. So uh, so I'm, I'm on board with, with Todd Phillips' instinct to explore mental illness. And he's very, and he's very overt about it. Um, when we look at some of Arthur's journals, um, he is very aware that he's mentally ill. And I think the film treats that as a, as a heartbreaking concept. But the thing, the thing is, if you're going to portray somebody as mentally ill, then part of that tragedy comes from us understanding that that illness is distorting the way they see the world. So that when that person, uh, lashes out, from a place of illness. Uh, it, it should be again, shocking, but that's the other thing. Uh, Todd Phillips, as I said, he, he, he often comes from a place of visual ugliness and certainly Gotham city historically is a very ugly place. And so he portrays it in a, in a way that is pretty gross and, uh, not very aesthetically pleasing. He shoots it again from a composition standpoint he shoots and framing he shoots it pretty well but um but the way it looks and then the the way the char- the other characters act and what they do everything about it is like this is just a hellish world and it reminded me of a of a line from community where uh, abed uh has like a, an evil doppelganger and he says when the world uh, something to the effect of when the world goes bad, the good go crazy, but the smart, they go bad. And so that's the thing is if he wanted to make a film about people being dismissive of mental illness to the point where somebody eventually lashes out, I think it probably would have been a smarter choice for him to portray the world as it is, not an overtly ugly world, but the, a world we recognize so that we see ourselves in the um, dismissiveness of these characters. But instead, he shows a world that is self-consciously, I won't say expressionistically, but it's self-consciously ugly with people being extremely self-centered and aggressive towards one another. Um, it's, it's a world that many of us, I'm sure some people live in a world like that, but it's a world that the vast majority of people won't recognize. It is a different, it is a, a riff on our world. Uh, it is a heightened version of our world. And in that world, Arthur's actions make a lot of sense because the smart go bad. And he, it looks as though he's having this moment of realization. And when you look at the world that Todd Phillips has built around him, of course he is. Anybody would. And I think that's what bothers me is that, okay, either you should 
either he's making a, a film about the ugliness of the world and the idea that a, a regular person or maybe a, a, it could be an ill person, whatever it is, that someone eventually is going to crack under the pressure of this horrible world. Or he is making a film about people's uh, attitudes towards the mentally ill until that guy finally cannot be contained anymore. Uh, to do both of them, I think negates both of them. Um, so I think there's, there probably could have been a way to show a distorted world as Arthur sees it. Uh, Todd Phillips is already willing to incorporate the concept of hallucinations into the filmmaking so that, uh, Arthur's neighbor, um, who would appear to be his girlfriend, uh, is revealed to, she exists, but their relationship is not a real thing that's happening completely in Arthur's head. So part of me thinks, okay, well, if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to incorporate true, you know, fantasy sequences into it, I would be, I would kind of love it if we saw the world the way Arthur sees it and then see it the way it is so that, uh, not to suggest that the world would be like a, a an upbeat, perfectly fine place. And he's just completely off his rocker. But, um, but that the ugliness that we, we see an extreme form of ugliness through his eyes and that every dismissive and maybe genuinely insulting thing that is said, it might not be said in the most aggressive way, but he takes it in an aggressive way. That is, you know, I, I, I have a, I have a mental illness myself, which is depression. Uh, it's a much more common mental illness than what Arthur is dealing with, obviously. Um, but it definitely does distort the world. Um, someone could give me a look, someone could say an offhand comment and it takes root in my brain and it grows and expands until it becomes, uh, an obvious, oh, just an obvious act of aggression. Um, and then thankfully I have friends and a wife who are able to address that and remind me of what is actually true. And so to me, if you were to make a movie about a, a character like Arthur Fleck, who's going to become the Joker, the idea of maybe he sees things in a completely different way, but when he reaches out for help, when he reaches out for stability, people are just not interested. Maybe because they're uncomfortable around mental illness, as people often are, um, or they don't believe him. Maybe they think he's just a jerk um, and they are unwilling to make concessions to his mental illness the way people are with regular illness. If somebody, if you see somebody walking up to a, a building and they're on crutches, you'll open the door for them because you're making an allowance for their illness. But again, with mental illness, that's something that is not automatically going to happen. And so I think there's a way to do this so that you're making a, a clearer statement, one that that we, the audience can take with us. But in the Gotham city that, uh, Todd Phillips has portrayed, I don't learn anything from that because I'm not those people. The city I live in isn't like that. The world I live in isn't like that. It's not, obviously it is a very broken world, but it's like, it's not, it's not as overtly 
uh, detestable as his. It's not as easily digestible in its evil as the one that Todd Phillips is presenting to us. And so I think that's, I think that's what really gets me. Um, I, I really love, as I said, I really love the idea of exploring mental illness, um, and people's attitudes towards it. But I think Todd Phillips, I'm reminded of, there's a, a Michael Moore film. I think it was, I think it was Fahrenheit nine 11 where he essentially, he tries to make, he's so eager to paint George W. Bush in a negative light that he actually comes up with, with several different theories as to what could have caused nine 11. Um, and the point that he's making is that it wasn't, uh, that Saddam Hussein in Iraq had nothing to do with it. And he's so eager to make that point that he comes up with theories that, and he doesn't say, Oh, it could be this or this. He puts all the theories out there as though they're all true, failing to recognize that many of them negate one another. And so that over eagerness um, to make your point um, or to uh, engage in a certain kind of style uh, or whatever it is, um, you know, I, I think a more mature filmmaker would realize that, oh, wait, this is actually uh, going against what I'm trying to do. And so I think that's my frustration um, with with the film, because when you have Arthur Fleck, who we've been told is is a is a tragic character and we should feel bad about it. But when we see him act out, I'm perfectly fine with, with painting that as a, as a positive thing because Arthur sees it as a positive thing. But because we've seen this horrendous world, we see it as objectively a positive thing as uh, people on the outside of Arthur's uh, psychosis. We see it as like, yeah, you know what? Get him, Arthur. Like at no point, and you know what? Maybe I'm just speaking for me, but based on other what I've read, other people say it definitely feels as though Todd Phillips is trying to get us just fully on Arthur's side, including the actions that uh, that he takes. Um, and maybe he isn't. That's that's the frustrating thing. I don't require the, uh, a film to have a clear message. Like I'm fine to work for it, except I think Todd Phillips wants me to do all the work. Um, he presents us with a lot of stuff, uh, much of it conflicting thematically, and I think he sees that as somehow the the as true artistry. Like, look at what I'm, look at what I'm doing. There's a lot to sift through. Yeah. But the problem is you sift through stuff and by the end you realize, Oh, there's actually nothing underneath it. It's all just been sifting. Um, so there are just obviously a lot of things that I don't like about Joker. Um, a couple other just formalistic things, uh, just the way that he uses music is also frustrating. Uh, the idea that he incorporates, you know, the song send in the clowns and it, and what I think put on a happy faces in there. And it's just, it's just all so obvious. Um, I recall there was a show, uh, several years ago that was called happy town. And, uh, if I remember correctly, the, the, the slogan or the tagline for the the show was something like, don't let the name fool you. And it's like, yeah, you've called your, you've called your uh, show happy town and it's a drama. I'm assuming it's ironic. Uh, it's, 
you, you don't need to like overplay your hand with that. It's just, you're being, you're, you're gilding Lily. You're playing it too, uh, hard. And that's how I feel about, uh, Todd Phillips use of music here. Uh, and what's interesting is a lot of people have talked about the score for the film. Uh, I know people that really love it and people that really dislike it. Uh, it looks like it's on track to possibly win best original score. And I don't remember it. Uh, I remember it being kind of bombastic and operatic, uh, but that's really it. Uh, I remember it feeling on the nose uh, emotionally, but I guess that's the nature of this movie and, and that's okay. Uh, a film does not, a film doesn't have to be incredibly subtle, but at the same time, given the stuff that Todd Phillips is doing, uh, I feel like just more thought should have been put into it. Everything is very broad. Um, and I'm sure there are some people that would say, well, Tyler, it's called Joker. This is a comic book movie. And I would argue that it actually is not. Uh, it's certainly not a superhero movie and that's fine, but I don't think it's a comic book movie either. Really, aside from this being called Gotham City and the idea of Thomas Wayne being murdered in front of his son, Bruce, uh, and there being a character called Joker, uh, everything about this film is kind of a generic taxi driver type, uh, movie that they've put this comic book, uh, sheen on. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a comic book movie. Um, the way people have been discussing it. Uh, I remember somebody said, you know, it's really interesting what, uh, what Todd Phillips is doing. He's, he's changing the comic book movie. It's like, no, he's just, he's using the comic book movie in the same way that he's exploring, uh, mental illness. He's using mental illness. He's doing all of these, he's incorporating all these different elements, uh, to make the movie he wants to make, which of course is what any filmmaker does, but he, the way he uses them, the way he mixes them together, I think ultimately come to a film that is, whether it means to be or not, uh, fairly nihilistic insofar as it's about nothing really. Um, you know, given a film like this, it does make you wonder if Todd Phillips thinks that we should learn from it. Uh, it would appear that the thing we need to learn is, is to take uh, mental illness seriously but that seems to be something that we learn um, almost in spite of the movie and not necessarily because of it, because I don't think he's doing the hard work uh, narratively or, uh, or uh, formally to, to bring that theme home. Uh, so I guess in a way, this isn't a word I use very much because it's been overused, but in a way I think the film might actually be a little bit pretentious in that it, it really wants to give the impression that is a, it, that it is about something, but in the end really isn't. Uh, and maybe that word doesn't really apply because I think Todd Phillips actually is trying to be, uh, is trying to make a film that is about something in most pretentious works. Actually, the, the filmmaker seems to actually know that there's really nothing underneath, but they can give it the air of artistic distinction. Uh, so the, the companion film for, uh, Joker, you would think it would be Taxi Driver or uh, The King of Comedy, but no, it is uh, Joel Schumacher's Falling Down. Now, uh, I did this was the companion film for my Toy Story three episode, so uh, I, I I've used it, but it was uh, quite a long time ago. 
And Falling Down is a movie that uh, I loved when I was in high school. That, that's kind of the right age for it. But And then I moved away from it. And now I've come back, but from a completely uh, different angle. <clears throat> so the story is about uh, this uh, middle-aged uh, sort of corporate guy played by Michael Douglas uh, who his name is, his name is revealed later on in the film, but he's, uh, credited as defense because that's his, uh, his license plate. And he works for the department of defense and he has gotten laid off a long time ago and he's in the middle of traffic and then just kind of loses it and decides to get out of the car. And he says, I'm going home. And along the way he encounters, various people in the city of Los Angeles and decides to lash out, uh, against them. Uh, eventually the lashing out becomes quite violent and <clears throat> it's the kind of thing where when you're watching it, you see the, the, these aspects of life that he's, that he's fighting against. And you think, yes, that is, I, I am on board with that. Uh, but then you come to realize as he gets more and more unstable, they're like, oh, maybe I'm not on board with this. Maybe I don't like the way that he's acting. Uh, but <clears throat> when you're young, as I was when I first saw the film, uh, his actions seem like super awesome and you're really on board. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, the film actually has uh, another lead played by Robert Duvall, my favorite uh, actor. And the character's name is uh, Prendergast, and he is a cop on his uh, on his last day before he finally retires. And he has been following the various crimes that uh, defense has been committing. And so everything comes to a head where these two men face off. And along the way, we learn about uh, defense's uh, life, that he, in fact, he says he's going home, but he's actually been divorced for a while, and he has some major emotional problems, but... Uh, uh, he wants to go see his wife and specifically, uh, his young daughter. <clears throat> and then Prendergast, we learn that he and his wife, uh, had a child and then, uh, she died of, uh, sudden infant death syndrome many years ago. And his wife, uh, seems to have never quite gotten over it. And she is sort of verbally abusive of her husband and is just neurotic and, and crazy. And he's also a cop, which require, which, you know, forces him to look at some of the darker sides of humanity. And so <clears throat> as I've gotten older, I really start to respond to Prendergast. Not that I didn't like him when I first saw it, uh, in, in uh, high school. Uh, but I think at the time I saw that that character is like, yeah, no, I get it. We got to have the character who does things right. Uh, but now I really understand that like, no, we, both of these men have been through, quite a bit, uh, in their life. And both of them have been screwed in some way, shape or form, uh, by the, the, the hand that they were dealt and they are choosing to deal with it in two different ways. So in that regard, there, the, the film has a, a certain parallel with Alan Moore's The Killing Joke, which was a one shot comic book featuring the Joker and Batman, uh, in the 1980s, uh, it's considered a, a this seminal uh, classic, and a big part of that uh, comic is Commissioner Gordon. 
we see the Joker's background and that he lost his wife and some terrible things happened to him. And then we cut back to modern day and he has kidnapped Gordon and stripped him and is trying to drive him crazy. And his whole argument is that in the right circumstances, anybody can go crazy, even somebody like Gordon, who is like the, the epitome of sanity. And <clears throat> it is interesting. I mean, obviously Batman and the Joker like are the rivals, but in a number of TV shows and comic books and movies, Joker does seem to focus on Gordon. Uh, in uh, The Dark Knight, uh, he does seem to zero in on on Commissioner Gordon uh, and really any figure of authority, but he, he does tend to, he kind of throws Gordon under the bus to uh, Harvey Dent. And so, so you have this, this interesting parallel in the killing joke. And at the end, Joker has done terrible things to Gordon, including, uh, he has shot Gordon's daughter, uh, and I think paralyzed her. And so you get to this point where you feel like, okay, is Gordon going to break? And he doesn't. And Joker is very uh, discouraged by that because he takes it as then there, there must be something wrong with me. Um, he doesn't say it quite like that, but, uh, but it's this idea that he has a theory and the theory sort of justifies what he's been doing in his life, that he's gone crazy, but Hey, who wouldn't if they'd experienced what I experienced? And then he tries to put somebody through that, uh, or through his own version of it and it doesn't happen. And so, uh, when I look at something like the movie Joker, we don't really have any foil. And and that's I think that's okay, but I do think that one good thing about having a character who is stable uh, is that it allows some sense of, of an anchor so that if you're going to make a point, I mean, in a way you could look at, at a film or certainly the themes of a film as an equation and you want to get to an answer and the specifics of this movie are your, are your variables, but you do need constants. You need, need points of relatability for the audience. And that's what, uh, Robert Duvall is in falling down. That's what commissioner Gordon is in any number of situations. And that is one of the things that Joker lacks. Um, anytime we, uh, a character is revealed that does have some level of authority or, or seems to have some type of sanity, that character is, a jerk, uh, you know, Thomas Wayne, who we've seen be a good guy in various other forms here is this, this cold, calculating, unsympathetic elitist guy. Uh, and so when he is killed, I don't think we're officially supposed to be happy about it, but we also aren't that sad about it either. Uh, and so he is just one more person contributing to not just the Joker's craziness, but everybody's uh, anger and frustration and resentment and all that sort of thing. And so when I look at something like Falling Down, I see that it is, like I said, they're co-leads, but I do think that the character of, of defense who's revealed his name is Bill Foster, uh, I think he's probably more your lead, but uh, Prendergast is very, very important because he's the one that can, when you get to the end, he's the one that can declare sort of the way things are, or he can, he can force, 
uh, our, our lead who's sort of lost his mind, he can force him to see what the truth actually is and do it in a sympathetic way. Uh, and I understand why Tom, uh, why uh, Todd Phillips may not have wanted to do that. He may have wanted to just make a film that is ultimately kind of nihilistic and without hope. Uh, certainly suggesting that when you are dealing with mental illness, you don't even know where to find that hope. I think that's that's okay. But at the same time, uh, you they could have had a young Commissioner Gordon in this, or maybe even a slightly older. He could have been like in his forties or fifties. They could have had him in this and they, they didn't, they could have had some symbol of sanity, uh, so that we could, so that, you know, to bring him back to the comic book idea, we do know that Batman eventually is going to show up and try to defend this city. But as it is right now, I find myself sympathizing, not merely with Joker, but also with, uh, Ra's al Ghul in, uh, in Batman Begins, which is like, this is not a city worth saving. I don't see any decency here. Uh, and then it, one or two characters show a glimmer of it, just a glimmer. Uh, and they're often made to be like the object of fun. And there's some kind of grotesque quality to them as well. And so I really, I feel like the film to, to explore what it's trying to explore. I, th- I, there are plenty of movies that I watch and enjoy where there are no redeeming characters. Um, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street being one off the top of my head, and I love that movie. So I'm okay. I don't require like some some beacon of light in in all of my films, but to do what Todd Phillips I think is trying to do, uh, which is explore the concept of, of mental illness and and explore the real tragedy of it, uh, I think you do need an anchor. I think you do need a constant, and I think Gordon absolutely could have been that. Uh, but he, and maybe he didn't want to overlap too much with the show Gotham, which has a young, uh, Gordon just as a sort of a beat cop for a while. Um, so the thing about falling down is that it's, it's a heightened film as well. Uh, so we often, just like in Joker, we see characters that seem oddly aggressive towards Arthur and they seem oddly aggressive towards, uh, defense, and, uh, and it's just, it's a very, I'll go, I'm, I keep coming back to this word grotesque. I think both films are grotesque, but with falling down, you actually have a, a glimmer of hope in, uh, the Prendergast character. And I think that's what this, what Joker needs. So, uh, you know, there's this, there's this moment. Um, so I'm going to compare a couple of lines here, uh, between Arthur and defense, uh, Arthur says, have you seen what it's like out there, Murray? He's talking to Murray, uh, Franklin. Do you ever actually leave the studio? Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. You think men like Thomas Wayne ever think what it's like to be someone else, to be somebody but themselves? They don't. They think that we'll just sit there and take it like good little boys that we won't go werewolf and wild, which is actually a, t- a phrase I enjoy. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, and then defense has a, a line where he says, he's talking to his ex-wife and he says, I've passed the point of no return. Do you know what that is, Beth? That's the point in a journey where it's longer to go back. Uh, it's longer to go back to the beginning. It's like when those astronauts got in trouble, I don't know, somebody messed up and they had to get them back to earth, but they had passed the point of no return. They were on the other side of the moon and were out of contact for hours. 
Everybody waited to see if a bunch of dead guys in a can would pop out the other side. Well, that's me. I'm on the other side of the moon now, and everybody's going to wait until I pop out. And so in both cases, uh, there's a real sense of like anticipation, this idea. It's like, we can, we can only wait for so long and the world will only put pressure on us for so long until finally, uh, we are going to pop out the other side and see where we are. We're going to go werewolf and wild and that sort of thing. Uh, Arthur asks a, uh, a, a question. I'm going to have to censor it because of the show. He says, what do you get when you cross a mentally ill loner with a society that abandons him and treats him like trash? I'll tell you what you get, what you get, what you deserve. And then he shoots Murray in the head and it's, and that moment is treated. I mean, they, you know, they don't play it in slow motion or anything like that. It's done in a very matter of fact way, but up to this point, Murray is not seen as a sympathetic character. He's seen as the symbol of everything. Well, I guess Thomas Wayne is seen as the symbol of everything that's wrong, but Murray is right there with him. Uh, and so to him, for, for him getting shot, that's something that I feel like the movie is on board with. And this is going to sound kind of weird, and it's going to sound like we're splitting hairs here, but I do think that I'm perfectly fine with a movie doing everything it can to show us the perspective, put us in the mindset of its main character, uh, even if the main character is a terrible person. Uh, to go back to Martin Scorsese, you look like you look at something like Raging Bull. It is a hard movie to watch because the main character is such uh, a monster. Um, so I do think that uh, a filmmaker, if they want to do that, that's perfectly fine. To to such an extent where the audience can absolutely see where the main character is coming from. But, and this is where it's, it, it's, an, there's an intangible quality here. The film can't be on their side. If they're doing something terrible, the film can't be on their side. And I think that's something that Martin Scorsese has always specialized in. If you watch something like, like Goodfellas, yeah, it definitely shows us why somebody would want to live this lifestyle. Uh, but I definitely feel as though Martin Scorsese is, is also standing back a little bit and saying like, yeah, this is really still pretty terrible. Uh, I can't think of anybody who would come away from Goodfellas and maybe there are, uh, who could come away from Goodfellas and saying like, yeah, that's the life for me. Uh, and then just in case, uh, there were people like that, that's what the Irishman is for is it shows that, yeah, this isn't the life for you because, uh, ch chances are you'll be dead. Um, so, uh, so you have these anyway, I've, I've made that point already, but, uh, and here's the importance of Prendergast in falling down. Defense talks about, they lied to me the they here being the world. And Prendergast, Prendergast says, is that what this is about? You're angry because you got lied to? Is that why my chicken dinner is drying out in the oven? Hey, they lie to everybody. They lie to the fish. But that doesn't give you any special right to do what you did today. And then he says, the only thing that makes you special is that little girl in reference to uh, Defense's daughter. And that means something special coming from Prendergast because he lost his little girl. And so what I like about this line is that Prendergast does not say they didn't lie to you. He said, of course they did. Of course this is a broken world. There's a, everyone. And, and it's like that for everybody. They lie to everyone. They lie to the fish. He's not saying the defense is wrong. And when it comes right down to a lot of what Joker says is not officially wrong. The question then is, does that give you 
a special right to do these terrible things. And I do think that increasingly, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think increasingly there are people that would say, yes, that when there's, when there's a speaker at a college and they're saying something you don't like, you have a right to, you have a special right to shut them down. Uh, if somebody is, if you feel scared when someone's walking down the street, regardless of who that person is, or if they're doing anything scary, you have a right to defend yourself, maybe by being a little bit on the offense. Uh, maybe you strike first because you have a fear of getting hurt. Uh, more and more, I feel like people are sort of staking their claim and saying, all right, if you cross this line, whatever this arbitrary line that I've come up with, then you deserve what you get, which is a very Joker type of line. And I, I, I do understand that. Uh, there are times when I look at the life that I've been given and it's very easy to see the negatives. Uh, the other day, in fact, I was, it was, uh, like 2 AM and I was reflecting on not being able to have children. And Jen and I are in the midst of, of, uh, adopting, uh, it's still quite a ways off, but we're in that process. So I was thinking about, and we're, we're excited about it, but there is still some grief that comes with not being able to, uh, to have children biologically because when you go through adoption or fostering, there's just so many forms to fill out and you're forced to ask, to, to answer questions that you would never have to answer. Um, if, uh, if you had a child biologically, uh, and then there are all kinds of tests and you just, and you feel like, it's like, no, I, you don't understand. I, I didn't do anything wrong. Like I realized that I, in many ways it makes sense that I have to prove this that I'm worthy, but if we were able to do this biologically, I wouldn't have to prove anything. And so I felt very angry at life. I, t I understand why all of this is happening. It makes perfect sense, but I'm still angry. Um, and it got to the point that I actually uh, felt overwhelmed and I'm not much of a crier. Uh, I tend to well up a lot, but I don't really cry. Uh, but that night I started crying and I could not stop. And I was just, and it was just the, the crying of, of grief, just grieving the situation as my therapist would say. And so I do understand, uh, you know, even looking outside the, the realm of, of mental illness, like I do understand the frustration of this life and this feeling of like just taking stock of where you are and as opposed to where you'd like to be, where you thought you would be, where you should be, um, but life, whether it be other people or just the way things turned out, uh, has not let you, let you do that. And it can be very frustrating and heartbreaking. And so I, I do want to acknowledge that just, just as Prendergast does, I want to acknowledge that, yeah, they, in this case, they lie to everybody. Um, but that doesn't give you or me a special right to do this stuff. Um, you know, uh, the Bible, I've got Matthew five forty three through 48. Um, it says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even, uh, uh, do not even the tax collectors do that? Oh, that's it. Sorry. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father was perfect. Now there at the end, it says be perfect, and that's hard to do. But it does talk about this idea that like, you, life will hurt you. And you could either say, well, it hurts everyone, and I'm sad about that, but I'm still going to be I'm going to do what God does and I'm going to try and love people as much as I can, even the people that hurt me. Um, I can try to protect myself and I can try to protect other people, but this idea of someone hurt me, I'm going to hurt them back. Uh, that is a very, that's a very natural attitude. And the Bible is saying like, to the degree that it causes some level of comfort, it's not about you deserve this or you don't deserve this. It's not about whether you've been good or bad or you've done the right thing or the wrong thing. The way the world just works, whether it be uh, something like a hurricane, uh, which is something that can't be prevented, or a person actually hurts you, uh, which very much could be uh, prevented. Now, there can be steps taken to to protect yourself or make sure that a person, that someone who has hurt you can't do that again to somebody else. But the idea of revenge uh, and lashing out at the world is not an option being given here. Uh, you know, it says like, have you heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Uh, and this says, and that makes sense, but there's nothing particularly special about that. Um, and so what I will say is let's look at these from, let's, let's look at this from the other perspective, looking at you know, I, I want the film to condemn Joker's actions more, but I also want to have a heart for him uh, as a character who has been mistreated constantly. He says, all I have are negative thoughts. And so, you know, to the degree that the film does condemn the world of Gotham City and how uh, callous it is to, to other people, uh, I want to encourage you and me as, you know, it's, recognizing that, uh, that the world is going to hurt us and it is going to hurt others. Uh, some people maybe get, uh, have gotten hurt worse than us. And not only are we sp- supposed to love the people that hurt us, but that's not where the Bible stops uh, telling us to do things. Uh, so still in Matthew, um, is Matthew twenty five forty. Uh, the King will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Um, Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. So if you're on the side of things where, which everybody is at some point, but if you're on the side of things where the world has, has mistreated you and life has mistreated you, um, then by all means seek help wherever you can. Uh, but you don't have any particular, you don't have a special right to, to lash out the way that defense or Joker, uh, the way they do. But at the same time, if you're on the other side, let's say things are going okay for you. And frankly, even if they're not, uh, we are commanded to love those people who are in, in a bad situation. And they might be, they might, you know, to put it in the most plain 
uh, terms, they might smell, they might be weird, uh, they might be gross, whatever it is. Uh, they are very much the least of these uh, by you know the least of these people. Uh, but we have to we we're commanded to love them and try to take care of them as much as we can, and we're commanded commanded to uh, carry each other's burdens. So we do have a responsibility. Uh, in a society. Now, the way that plays out, that's something that people disagree uh, on politically, which is fine. But certainly on an individual basis, uh, we do have a responsibility to one another. And then if you are, but if you are to flip back to the other side, if you are somebody who's in that situation of, of Arthur Fleck or Bill Foster, uh, it's very easy for me to say, Hey, uh, you know, Hey, it, it rains on the, the, the righteous and the unrighteous, you don't have a right to do any of these uh, terrible things. You have to love your neighbor. Well, see ya. I don't want to say that. I mean, I did, but the Bible also reassures you, uh, Luke six verses 20 through 22, looking at his disciples, he, he being Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. And that one stuck out to me because we're dealing with Joker, a guy whose laugh, when it happens naturally, it happens as a function of pain. Uh, and then he, but he also tries to force it and it sounds insane. Uh, laughter is, is a thing that, uh, that is, is not a positive in his life. And so, uh, so the idea of reassuring somebody that is, that is weeping, that you will laugh, you will get to a point where you laugh a, what Tom Waits would call a good, clean laugh. Um, and uh, so then it says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man. And so this is something that I've been feeling a lot lately, uh, not because people have been doing that, but there are times when I just feel very excluded from the world, uh, either usually because of just stuff going on inside my own head. Uh, and so it's nice to be reassured in the same way that the reason that, again, this, this line from Prendergast and falling down really works for me is because he doesn't say that defense is wrong. He is granting absolutely this is a, a, a bad world, but I, I want to promise you that there is something special about you. You will be raised up at some point. Um, Matthew 11 verses 28 through 30, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that sounds I, I've always loved that. Uh, admittedly, the word yoke uh, is something that uh, may, maybe doesn't have uh, the most positive connotation because like, you mean like an egg yolk? Um, but this idea of, of being weary and burdened and just like, come to me and I will share that burden with you. And it's tough. It's, it's a tough situation to be in because for me, uh, the concept of God and God's love and him sharing the burden has always been very abstract. And so I have a hard time letting go of my burdens and I have a hard time trusting God, but I, I am supposed to. And so I, and that's the other thing is you can pray to God and say, help me to trust you because I can't do this on my own. Um, so to bring it back to the, the movies that we're talking about, I do think that Joker 
there's there's so much potential there, and I think Joaquin Phoenix finds the potential. I don't think Todd Phillips does. There's potential to really have a a, a heart for Joker while still. Uh, feeling that the world is worth redeeming. It's worth fighting for. That's the whole Batman principle. And that it's not solely about condemning it. And that's something that, that falling down, which is not a perfect film. It has faults, but falling down does understand. Um, there's a, it's a big theme of, uh, the movie seven as well. Um, so I feel like that is maybe that's at the core of what is, wrong with Joker is that, uh, in a way it sort of wants to have its cake and eat it too. It wants to condemn this world, uh, while also condemning Joker's actions. And I think it winds up condemning the world, but not Joker's actions. Uh, I think a better filmmaker and I think a more subtle screenwriter would have been able to do that. And that is not Todd Phillips. I hate to say it. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it has still resonated with a lot of people. So if it resonated with you, please feel free to leave a comment in the comment section. Uh, as you can hear, I'm a little bit under the weather and so my voice is getting worse. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off now. Thank you so much, everybody for listening. And, uh, speaking of, uh, the Irishman, I'm pretty sure that will be, uh, the next episode, which will be in the next, uh, week or two. Um, so yeah, please feel free to like and subscribe on iTunes. Leave a nice uh, a nice comment, um, and uh, feel free to share this episode around as well. So in the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and I'll get you next time. Bye.